All right. Well, um, to get started, if you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Um, I've really enjoyed coming here, and um, I've been very fortunate that I've been allowed to come here fairly often. And so, with that in mind, because I like book studies, I'd like to begin a book study with you today in the book of Colossians. And Lord willing, we'll um, continue through it next time I am here. So we're going to start with Colossians chapter 1. And I've titled today's message, The Preeminence of Christ. You know, we are coming upon a new year. Um, actually, it's kind of funny that we think about how fast time goes. And I woke up this morning and I'm like, we're already three days in. You know, it seems like just yesterday we were at the beginning of December and we were planning for Christmas and all, all the excitement that comes with it. I had family come in from Connecticut where my um, brother-in-law is in the Navy. And uh, I actually have a brother who's retired from the Army, a brother who's an active Marine, a brother-in-law in the Navy, and then a brother who's a captain in the Air Force. So when the military was prayed for earlier, I really resonated with that. I also resonated with the prayer request for the baby that was born three months early because I was born three months early and I'm a living testament to what God can do uh, through the trials of this life to bring his glory forth. Um, some people say that I could pray for healing and you know what, I know that God could heal me, but I think that I'm um, able to reach more people and glorify God more effectively through where I am right now. And if God decides that he wants to change my location, he can do that at any time. But I'm going to be faithful to him from this chair for as long as I have breath. And so with that in mind, let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll begin our study in Colossians. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the book of Colossians. We thank you for the clear way that the Apostle Paul articulates your truth. We pray that as we unfold it today that we would um, at least scratch the surface of what you want us to learn and that we would be better people for having been here. We will give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, um, my first point today, if you're taking notes, which I do recommend because it's always good to remember the things that we are learning is faith in Christ brings forth fruit. And we'll start out by looking at the first ten verses of Colossians chapter 1. I also would like to mention that I have cross-references. And one of the things that I've gotten in the habit of doing is I will ask people in the audience to look up cross-references. This helps in a couple different ways. Number one, helps me have to turn in my Bible a little bit less. And number two, it keeps you awake. Because you have to pay attention. So, keeping that in mind, let's read the first ten verses of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you have um, whereof you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you since the day you heard of it, and know the grace of God in truth. As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might <coughs> be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
And one of the reasons that I like the Apostle Paul is that I feel like the, the calling that he had was to cause Christians to want to draw closer to God. He wasn't primarily focused on the lost. He obviously did preach the gospel. He obviously did reach the lost. But his primary focus in his writing of his epistles was to stir up the church of God and to encourage them to live out God's commands more faithfully. And that in and of itself will bring forth the fruit of sharing the gospel. Because when people see us living an authentic Christian life, they'll want to know what it's about. Now there's always going to be people that are going to reject God. It's hard for us as Christians to comprehend, because we know what the mercy and grace of God has done for us, and what God executing his justice upon Jesus Christ has done for us as sinners. And the world, it says in one of Paul's epistles, it says, The cross is foolishness to them that perish. So there's basically two camps of people in the world today. There's those who love the cross, who see the beauty of the cross, and those to whom the cross is foolish. And so today, perhaps the first question is, where are you? And I also want to bring out the fact, as I said in this first point, that faith in Christ brings forth fruit. Let's go through some of these verses. First of all, Paul is saying, is laying out his credentials. Paul is very good at this. He will lay out his credentials as he's getting into his letter, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, this is an important thing. I, I've heard a preacher once say, I think it was Alistair Bay, he said, if you can do anything else but preach, do it. But if you can do anything else but preach, then you'll know you're called to preach. And I can honestly tell you that if I abandoned preaching and tried to do something else in my life, I would not feel the fulfillment I feel today. I know that God called me to do it, and he has been able to use me in ways that I never imagined because I finally surrendered. And believe me, it was a journey, and I'd love to talk with any of you in more detail about that. And then... One thing that Paul does exceptionally well as well is he may be dealing with some problems as we go on, but he does well at starting with the positive. And we, if we're dealing with our interpersonal relationships, either with our spouses or with our siblings or with our children, we could do well to learn from this. What does Paul say? He says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the first thing that Jesus said to the disciples when he appeared to them in the upper room? He could have said, you guys are foolish. How could you not believe me? I'm here just like I said. Why don't you guys get this through your head? No, he didn't. He said, peace be unto you. Now, there, were, there was at least one time in, in the, the, his after-resurrection body in which he called some people foolish, and that was on the road to, to Emmaus. But I have a feeling that even in, in calling people foolish, he did it in a gracious manner. And as I look at the, con, the, the climate that we're in, and especially on social media, I find that there's a lot of people trying to say the right things, but they don't say it with grace. You see, the truth needs to be delivered with grace, seasoned with salt. We don't need to angrily proclaim the Word of God in order to boldly proclaim the Word of God. We can do it with grace. And then Paul says something else that he frequently says. He says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, I don't know about you, but my prayer life needs to get better. 
I would love to be able to say that I'm always praying for all of you. I want to get to that point where I can actually say that. I try to go through a prayer list. But it's evident when you read Paul's epistles that he was very personal with the people that he reached out to. And that prayer was a priority for him. Perhaps that's why elsewhere in his epistles he says pray without ceasing. And then he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints. When people think of Christians, that's what they should think about. Whether they agree with us or not, they should be able to say, these people love people. And that's convicting to me too because when I disagree emphatically with someone on a moral issue, in particular, the last thing I want to do, in some ways, is to show them love. But that's exactly what God tells us to do. And it's a point of clarification too because often we say, well, well if I love them, then I don't want to disappoint them or say something wrong, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But the Proverbs tell us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If your friend's house is on fire and you know it, you go to them and you say, your house is on fire, get out. I just saw a story this week about a, a little girl who was out riding a bike with her dad. And she said, Daddy, that house is on fire. And they actually went to the house, knocked on the door, and told the family that their house was on fire because the family had no clue about it. And I just think about, that's the way we need to be with the gospel. We're not in charge of getting people saved, but we are commissioned to share the message and to allow God to sort out the details. I've mentioned probably here before that I listened to the show Unshackled. I get it delivered to my iPhone every week. And in that show, you will hear testimonies of people and how Christ unshackled them and set them free. And often, it's not the first person that shares the gospel with them, not the second person, not the third or the fourth but often the fifth or sixth person that actually gets to be the active vehicle that leads them to Christ. But all those seeds come and germinate all at once and produce fruit. And then we hear him talking about the truth of the gospel in verse 5. And in verse 6, we hear this. It brings forth fruit... As it doth in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth. I think this is something that is often missing from our presentation of the gospel. We say, pray and ask God to forgive you. And he will. And this is true. But if we just use the words and we don't focus on the fact that we're inviting the spirit of God to come into our lives. And that if it is present, it will produce fruit. We're missing a major component of the gospel. There are some who claim to be Christian ministers who don't preach that the gospel must produce fruit. But that's what we see here in verse 7. And then we learn about Epaphras who is a dear fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. What a testimony. I sometimes half joke that if I one day have a son, I'd like to name him Epaphras. I don't know if that will pass muster. Because it's kind of a strange name. But what a testimony. And what that's what we should aspire to. That when people think of us, 
in the church that they would think of us as a dear fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. And that he was able to sense their fruit and and declare their love for God because he was of one spirit with them who also declared unto us your love in the spirit. And then, since the day he heard of them producing fruit, he says, I'm going to keep praying for you. That your fruit would continue, verses 9 and 10. And that you would walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, this is what the Christian life is about. It's not about being stagnant. It's not about reaching a place where we're... Where it's kind of a dichotomy. Because in a sense, there's a place in which we're satisfied with Christ. In a way that we've never been satisfied before. But it's also a journey that doesn't end. It's a journey that says, every new year, how can 2016 be better in my walk with you than 2015? What did I do in 2015 to make it better than my walk in 2014? What do I know in 2016 that will make 2017 better if God chooses to tarry? These are things we need to be asking. And we need to realize that if we have true faith in Christ, it will produce fruit. And why is this important? It's important because often when we teach the fruit of the Spirit, we, we teach it as if you need to try to produce these things in your life. And there's an element of that. I'm not going to say it's totally wrong. But often we forget that we just need to rest in Christ and let Him work through us. It says in Philippians chapter 2, For it is Him who worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. He does the work. It's not so much try to produce love, try to produce peace, try to produce patience. It's if you are in Christ, these things will be produced in you. And so we we can rest in that. And we can certainly ask God for help in these specific areas. But we need to rest in the fact that he promises he will give these things to us. And so he will, because he's never backed down on a single promise. Could someone look up, by way of cross-reference on this first point, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Ephesians 1, 13. If somebody has it, they can read it for us. We're included in Christ. When you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And this is just further verification that God comes to you when you're saved. He gives you the seal of the Holy Spirit and he says, you are mine. And because you are mine, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to help you. That's what Jesus said. He said, when I leave, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to be your helper, to be your comforter, to be with you always. You know, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came on select individuals at select times. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is available to us at all times. And I do believe that there are fillings For specific reasons. Like I always pray that the Holy Spirit would be be filling me as I preach. And it's interesting because um, I feel a unique sense of tiredness when I'm done preaching. And I know it's because God's at work. I always have to fight against uh, getting too down after I preach too. But I know that I'm not alone in this because after Elijah fought the prophets of Baal and prevailed on Mount Carmel, what did he do? He ran into the desert and he says, Lord, I wish I could die. And this is Elijah, this great man of the faith, and yet he is 
dealing on a very human level. And he says, God, I can't do it. And you know what? That's really the point. We can't do it. When we think we can, that's when we get in trouble. At least that's when I get in trouble. All right. So, we've covered the fact that faith in Christ produces fruit. So if you have faith in Christ, you will produce fruit. Now, it will happen at different rates. And not every day is going to be this extremely fruitful day where you're going to be like, Yes, I did all this great stuff for the Lord. It was such a great day. Some days things are going to seem like nothing ever goes right. But even in those days, He is there. Okay, so our second point, Colossians 1.11 through 20, is through faith we gain the blessing of redemption. So I'm going to read Colossians 1.11 through 20. I'm going to go back to 10 just to give us some context. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How do we do this? Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Giving thanks unto the Father which had made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. In whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the, be- who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of the cross by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So we see that, 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 that we're strengthened to produce this fruit that we talked about in the first point, by his glorious power. And see, if, if we're not walking in him, if we're walking in our own strength, sometimes we, we look at life situations and we say, there's no way I can do it. And again, I say to you, if you get one thing out of this message today, realize that that's the best position that you can be in. May I bring your attention to the Old Testament example of Abraham and Sarah. God tells Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham says, okay, God. At this point, he's in his 70s, I think. He says, okay, God. Time passes. No son. 10 years, 15 years. No son. He says, well... uh, And Sarah says, well, maybe you should take my maid and have a child. By her, and if the child's born on my knees, then it will be my child, because that's what the culture says. And this is how you can get an heir. And then God comes back to Abraham and he says, No, you're going to have a son from your own loins, from Sarah's womb. And then later, again, he says, Well, can't Eliezer, my chief steward, can't he be my heir? And God says, no. And then he finally visits him in the plains of Mamre. Jesus Christ, I believe, because it says that the Lord was there. The pre-incarnate Christ sits down, eats with Abraham and says, I will revisit you next year, this time, and Sarah will have a son. So we need to know that with what, what is impossible for man, is possible with God. And so then he goes back to giving thanks. I think sometimes we, 
we underestimate the power of thanksgiving. He says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. We get to come to the light, not because of our own light in our bodies. Sometimes people say, well, people are basically good and we just have to find it. No. The Bible says that all men are evil. But the good that we do can come only through the power of Christ. Jeremiah 17, 9 is what I cited there when it says, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But God promises to give us a new heart, new power. And then he delivered us from darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Do we really think about this? This is God's dear son, the one that he created the worlds with. And yet he comes to him sometime in eternity past and says, Son, my people are going to need you. So I want you to step down out of heaven, to step into a human body, to live a perfect life, to be an example to them, and then I want you to allow evil men to nail you to a cross. And then I want you to rise again the third day to prove that you have victory over the grave. Can you imagine what that conversation must have been like? I don't think we, I know I don't spend enough time contemplating that. It would certainly change the way we live. And then he goes into that all things were created by God for God. And that he is before all things and by him everything consists. Paul said it this way in Acts. He said, in him we live and move and have our being. And he is the head of the body, the church, And in all things, he should have the preeminence. (coughs) That means any area of life where a decision needs to be made, you need to go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do with this? It's very important. And then he affirms the deity of Christ by saying, For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. And then, one of my favorite verses in this passage. And having made peace through the blood of his Christ, by him, by the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth, or things in heaven. I don't fully comprehend what that means, but I do know that it says in Romans that the whole of creation groans for the return of Jesus. And that when Jesus returns, there will be a new heaven and a new earth that will last forever and be above and beyond any of our expectations. Paul talks a little bit about Well, I believe anyway, when he talks about a man who went to the third heaven but couldn't speak of the things which he had seen. I tend to believe in my study that that was when he was stoned and they thought he was dead. Perhaps he was and he went to the third heaven, but God sent him back. I don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility, but he said, I can't talk about it. And then he said in another place, I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man which the, the, those things which the Lord has prepared for those who love him. And I don't think it's jumping too far out of context to think of this either. Do we realize as a Christian community that marriage is to be a picture of the love that Christ has for his church? 
The love that Christ has for his church is such that he came down, inhabited a human body, lived a perfect life for 33 years among imperfect parents and imperfect siblings. When it says that he was subject to Mary and Joseph, it's not saying Mary and Joseph were perfect. They were imperfect, but he still was subject to them. He loved his, his brothers, even though they did not believe on him. They were such doubters that who did Jesus give his mother to when he passed away? It wasn't one of his brothers, Jude or James, although we knew they eventually came around because they wrote epistles. It was his disciple John who he loved. And so with this example, we should know that we can live with imperfect people in our lives. Marriage is two imperfect people coming together. And a perfect marriage is simply two imperfect people who won't give up on each other. Kirk Cameron, who is an actor who was known for growing pains in the 80s, is married to Chelsea Noble. They recently had their 25th anniversary of their engagement. And he posted that he always tells his wife that if she ever decides to leave, he's going to pack his bags and ask her where they're going. <laughs> and when I read that on his Facebook post, and then I read the comments after it, there was a story of a lady who said she tried to leave several times in the early years of her marriage, and every time her husband left with her. And it took her a while, but she realized that his love was unconditional, that he wasn't going to leave, and now she says they are best friends. Please, I implore you, do not give up on your marriages. And if you're contemplating getting married, make sure that you know that above all, your commitment is not to your families that you're coming out of. It's not to the person that you're standing with that day. Your ultimate commitment is to Almighty God. And he says, don't let anything put your marriage asunder. And he says that you are permitted to divorce in cases of infidelity, but he never says you should. How often have we been unfaithful to God and yet he remains faithful to us? This is an important thing that I cannot stress enough. Can we look at Titus 3, 3-6 very quickly as we continue to contemplate this idea of the blessing of redemption? Titus 3, 3 to 6. If somebody has that, they can go ahead and read it for us. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us because of righteous things, not because of righteous things we had done. Because of his mercy. He saved us by the washing, rebirth, renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is so important because sometimes we think, well, I'm a pretty good guy. So it's really this, it's pretty expected that God would give me his grace and his salvation because I'm a pretty good guy. But he says, it's nothing that you've done. If it were up to you, you wouldn't be anywhere except in hell. Even, even Noah, what does it say? It doesn't say Noah did everything right. It says he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the very reason that the human race exists now, is because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you and I can only do the same. I want to share this short story with you. The boy who lost his boat. Tom carried his new boat to the edge of the river. He carefully placed it in the water and slowly let out a string. How smoothly the boat sailed. 
Tom sat in the warm sunshine admiring the little boat that he had built. Suddenly a strong current caught the boat. Tom tried to pull it back to shore, but the string broke. The little boat raced downstream. Tom ran along the sandy shore as fast as he could, but his little boat soon slipped out of sight. All afternoon he searched for the boat. Finally, when it was too dark to look any longer, Tom sadly went home. A few days later, on the way home from school, Tom spotted a boat, just like his in the store window. When he got closer, he could see, sure enough, it was his. Tom hurried to the store manager. Sir, that's my boat in your window. I made it. Sorry, son, but someone else brought it here this morning. If you want it, you'll have to buy it for one dollar. Tom ran home and counted all his money. Exactly one dollar. When he reached the store, he rushed to the counter. Here's the money for my boat. As he left the store, Tom hugged his boat and said, Now you're twice mine. First I made you. Now I bought you. And that's the message that Jesus Christ gives to us today. He made you and he bought you. So, are you thankful for that today? Is that a living part of your life? And then, finally, this redemption is for all. Therefore, stand firm. Colossians 1, 21-29. And you, who are sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now have he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature that is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh, for his body's sake, which is the church." Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in the wisdom of that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his, his working, which worketh in me mightily. And again, I'm very humbled by this passage, because I, when I read the Paul's epistles, I, I feel like I'm a student again, learning from this teacher. But as Paul himself would say, he is nothing special. He even said in Romans chapter 7, the good that I would do, that I do not, but the bad things that I would not, those things I do. So he knew what it was like to live with sin, but he also knew what it was like to gain victory and to walk in victory. And he goes back. He repeats kind of this idea that we were enemies of God. And then he is going to present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Why is that? Colossians chapter 3, he says it this way. And we'll get into that at a future date, Lord willing. But it talks about how we are hid with Christ in God. That means everything that God gave Christ, he gives to us. Mm-hmm. And he talks about that we need to be continuing in the faith, grounded and settled, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. So we need to be grounded in the truth. We need to be reading the Bible so that when people come at us and they claim to be Bible teachers and they claim to be teaching the truth, we can look in the Bible and we can say, is this true? And I would challenge each of you to do the same to me. See, I'm not here because I have something great to say. 
Although God does give me words, I do believe that. I'm here to preach the word of God. And I'm responsible to God to deliver the truth. Not to sanitize it in any way. Not to make it sound better than it is. Not to make it sound worse than it is. We're people of extremes. Either we go too far on the grace end, often. Or we go too far on the law end. And we don't think about grace. That's why it says grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Because they both need to be true. And for those that humble themselves and realize their sin, Jesus doesn't spend time beating them up. The people that he berates, the people that he gives lectures to, are the people that think that they're perfect. Like the Pharisees. And then he says, Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites. You give the people burdens that you can't even bear yourself. And one day, you're going to be sorry for that. My paraphrase, but that's the general idea. So we need to be grounded, and we will continue to look at that in more detail in in Colossians chapter 2. But then... Paul talks about suffering in verse 24, and this is an important point too. I I have a friend who is well-meaning. I believe she knows the Lord. But she will often make comments to the the, uh, idea that God doesn't want Christians to suffer. That suffering is from the devil and God doesn't want you to suffer. Now, there is a certain degree of that. I mean, God promises to be with us. He promises to sustain us. He promises us to save us from the wrath to come. And I, I personally believe that there will be a lot of wrath that we will be saved from when Jesus takes us out of this world. But there are millions of martyrs for the gospel every year. They suffer for God. Paul suffered so much for God. And yet he said, it's worth it because I'm producing fruit in you. I'm helping you to produce fruit. And then uh, he talks about the mystery which has been hid from the ages but is made manifest to his saints. You know, for thousands of years, people in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints, were looking forward to Jesus coming. Sad thing is, many of them didn't realize he was there when he got there. Because he stood up in the synagogue and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captive free. And what did the people do when he set it down and said, This day this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. They ran him out of the city and tried to throw him off a cliff. But it says he passed through the midst of them, which may be the first time he ever went invisible. Because I don't know how else he would have done it. But one way or another, he passed through the midst of them because his time had not yet come. Time is very important to God. He knows what he's doing. There's an old gospel song I don't remember the words to, but it said something along the lines of God is never early, he's never late, but he's always right on time. And the problem with us is we need to get our economy in line with his rather than the other way around. Somebody asked um, Abraham Lincoln that question. They said, do you think God is on our side? And he said, the important thing is not whether God is on our side, but whether we are on his. And it's so true. And uh, then he talks about preaching and warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. I think something that's missing from a lot of preaching today is the warning. There is a real hell that you will go to if you don't trust Christ. (laughs) But if you trust him, you will go to heaven and it will be a great place. There's no wheelchairs there. I'm going to be walking around. I'm going to be running. I, 
I'm just so excited for that. I hope there's sports in heaven too, because I feel like I really missed out on that here. So, if anyone wants to get up, if anybody wants to get up a, a basketball game or whatever, look me up when we get there, because uh, I'm all in. But anyway, um, so he talks about warning every man, so we can learn to be perfect in Christ Jesus. And strive according to his working, which works in you mightily. You know what? It is a striving. It is never going to be complete this side of glory. But we should continue to endeavor to reach higher points of holiness. Because he called us to be holy. Could somebody look up very quickly? Jude 1, 24 and 25. Just one more passage about how... God has the power to present us faultless. Jude 1, 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Remember what we said the title of our message was today. That in all things he would have preeminence. I, I love the fact that in my church, in the sanctuary, in the front, there's two verses, one on either side, and one of those is that verse. Because when we go to church in the morning, that should be our goal. Is that in all things in the service... He should have preeminence. But we should also have it, at least in our mind's eye, posted in our kitchen, in our bedroom. Because the Bible says we can't go anywhere to hide from God. Jonah tried. He went the opposite way that God told him to go and God sent a whale that gobbled him up. And he prayed from the belly of the whale and asked forgiveness. But even the end of Jonah isn't that encouraging because Jonah is mad at God in the very last chapter. I don't know why God left it that way, but it always stands out as an example to me that God is in control and that I don't need to rage against him. I'm going to close with this story. This was right after the Civil War. General Robert E. Lee was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. It is said that soon after the end of the American Civil War, he visited a small church in Washington, D.C. During the communion service, he knelt beside a black man. An onlooker said to him later, How could you do that? Lee replied, My friend, all ground is level." Beneath the cross. I say this to you with all confidence. All ground is level beneath the cross. And I pray and I hope that you would trust Jesus Christ with everything you have and that you would experience the fact that all ground is indeed level. At the foot of the cross. I'd like to close with a song and I hope that you will just think about uh, what we've talked about today and maybe look ahead to Colossians chapter 2 in preparation for the next time we're together. I don't know when that will be. I'm sure that I will get with Todd and, and figure that out. I thank you very much for your prayer support, for your financial support, and I ask that you would continue to pray for the ministry of speaking for him in the year 2016. I I'm just very thankful for those that have uh, supported me. I couldn't do this on my own.
it's not about me, it's about him. And I'm so thankful for the supporters that come around me to help me. Because if you'll notice, the majority of Paul's ministry was in partnership. He was with Silas. He was with Barnabas. He was with Timothy much of the time. He was even with Luke. And so what a great thing that is. Sometimes does it seem too good to be true that God's only son lived and died just for you? Is it hard to believe that his love's really there when in spite of your sin he continues to care? I don't know what a sinner you are, but I know what a savior he is. I don't know where your feet have taken you, but his climbed up Calvary's hill. I don't know what kind of words you've spoken, but his words were, Father, forgive. I don't know what a sinner you are, but I know what a Savior he is. Sometimes does it seem you've wandered too far. You'll never give back to your place in his heart. Don't you know that he waits for the sound of your prayer? Just whisper his name and you'll find he is there. I don't know what a sinner you are, but I know what a savior he is. I don't know where your feet have taken you, but his climbed up Calvary's hill. I don't know what kind of words you've spoken, <clears throat> but his words were, Father, forgive. I don't know what a sinner you are, but I know what a Savior he is.